Yahweh, we just praise you tonight. Come before you in humble obedience and surrender to you. And I just pray that as we come to your word, you just open our hearts to what you have to say. As we go through the prophets, we would hear you as you open your heart and share it with the people from long ago, knowing that this still applies to our hearts today because humans, in essence, have not really changed that much, if any at all. And I just pray that you open our hearts and encourage us where we need to be encouraged, convict us where we need to be convicted, teach us who you are and your sovereignty, and guide us in the path and the will that you have for us. And I pray that as we walk away from this, you would hide these things in our heart, allow them to blossom and grow, and transform us through the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We are starting the post-exilic prophets. The post-exilic prophets are the final prophets who came to Israel and ministered to them. Now remember, the Bible is divided The prophets, the prophetic books of the Bible, are divided into two major categories. There's the pre-exilic prophets, the ones that ministered during the 700s and 600s and 500s, to Israel and Judah, warning of the coming judgment under the Assyrians and the Babylonians that would come if they did not give up their idolatry and their social injustice and their religious hypocrisy. That first category is divided into two subcategories, the ones who ministered before the Assyrians came and the ones who ministered before the Babylonians came and sacked them. Israel in the north by the Assyrians and Judah in the south by the Babylonians. Then Israel went into exile and they spent about 70 years in exile. And that's what we've already gone through. And then when they came out, God sent another group of prophets to minister to them. This is called the post-exilic prophets. And so this is the the second major category that they're divided into. So the post-exilic prophets were Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, and Malachi. And they ministered between 520 and 431 B.C. Malachi being the final voice from God until John the Baptist would come on the scene more than 400 years later. They confronted Israel's continued corruption, the corruption that did not magically go away after exile and judgment. And they called Israel to a life of holiness. Many people believe that Joel and Obadiah were actually pre-exilic prophets. And the reason they believe this is because when you go to the Bible... The Bible has Joel and Obadiah in the table of contents with the pre-exilic prophets. So they claim, well, those are pre-exilic prophets, then if they're organized with the pre-exilic prophets. But we've already seen that the books of the Bible are not in chronological order historically. And many of even the pre-exilic prophets are even out of chronological order with each other. So it's a very weak argument in that sense. However, when you read Joel and Obadiah, they really seem to be pointing or they really seem to be in the context of the post-exile. And we'll talk about the reasons why people take one view over the other view when we actually deal with those books. So once again, we're not going through these books in table of contents order. 
or going through them in chronological order by the time, the date that they were ministering and what they were saying to the people. This setting is Israel was taken to exile under the Syrians and then the Babylonians. They spent about 70 years in exile. And, the, and that is during the time of Daniel and Ezekiel. They were major prophets. During, or Daniel was a major character in the exile. And Ezekiel was a major prophet during the time of the exile. And they ministered there. Then they were brought back out of exile. So Cyrus II gave an edict in 539 BC, allowing all the Jews to return back to their land, including all the other nations that had been taken by the Assyrians and Babylonians to return to their land. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we learned about the three waves that returned Israel back. So there was the wave led, the first wave led by Zerubbabel in 539 BC, where they began to rebuild the temple and finished it in 515. There was a second wave led by Ezra that brought a bunch of people, and he dealt with the impurity of the people and the fact that they were continuing to act the way that they had pre-exile. And then there was the third wave led by Nehemiah, and he was rebuilding the walls and securing the city. So it is during this time period of these three returns that most of these post-exilic prophets are ministering. Haggai and Zechariah specifically are ministering during the first return of Zerubbabel. And then Joel and Obadiah are, we kind of had a rough idea when they ministered, probably most likely just a little bit after the temple had been finished, so that time between Zerubbabel and Ezra's return. And then Malachi seems to be post-Nehemiah's return. And that kind of is the idea of where these prophets fit in chronologically. So Haggai and Zechariah during the first return, and Joel and Obadiah somewhere maybe in between the first and second return, and Malachi after the third return. And so that's the context. Once again, we saw in Ezra and Nehemiah that the people hadn't really changed that much in any kind of a way, other than they probably they finally got rid of idolatry. But they exchanged the idolatry of pegging gods and idols with basically just the idolatry that you and I struggle with on a regular basis of um, what um, Augustine called disordered love, where we put things in our lives at a much higher value than Yahweh and pursue them and give more energy, time, and emotions and thought and money to those things rather than God and find our significance in those things. And so they begin to do the same thing. So other than blatant idolatry of gods and idols, they had not really changed that much. This is the context. These prophets are ministering to those people in that culture in that context. What is the purpose of the post-exilic prophets as a whole? The purpose was to call Israel to faithfulness to Yahweh so that he could establish the new Jerusalem where Yahweh would, could truly dwell with them. Remember in the pre-exilic prophets, Yahweh promised a day where he would return them back to the land. And in the land, he would establish a new Jerusalem. And this new Jerusalem would be ruled by his Messiah, a righteous king in the line of David that would not mess up like David did. And this king would establish Israel as the most prominent leader over all the other nations. And therefore, this nation would become everything that God wanted them to become and promised that they would become. 
And this nation of Israel would be a place where there would be no more evil. There would be more, no more sin. And as a result of that, all the nations would be invited to come to this city. And in this city, God would literally make this city his cosmic mountain. And he would dwell with them. And then this city would grow and expand with a Garden of Eden-like growth that would fill the entire world and establish God's covenant community, his Garden of Eden, on all the planet. And this is what God was promising. However, when they returned back to the land, we obviously saw in Ezra and Nehemiah that did not happen. And this is one of the things that Zechariah is going to address is that it didn't happen because the people really haven't turned to God. They haven't really changed any at all. And this is what the pre-exilic prophets said too, that the only way that this could happen is if something had changed in the hearts of the people. Humanity's hearts were hard and stubborn and cold and dead. And they needed, they, they, what seems right to a man or woman just leads to destruction and death. And the only thing that could change them is if they were circumcised to the heart, which Moses said back in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and 30, Jeremiah repeated in his prophecies that our hearts need to be circumcised. When that happened, then the new Jerusalem could finally be established. God could finally dwell with us. Of course, we know that that's the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what begins the circumcision of our heart, which we call sanctification today. This is what God promised. So now that they're back, Yahweh is saying that you have to be faithful. If you want this new Jerusalem to be established, you have to be faithful to God. And faithfulness begins with you turning to him. And when you turn to him, then circumcision of the heart can happen. And then the new Jerusalem can happen. And so that's the idea that God is going to continue to promise that what he's begun to do with bringing them back to Israel and establishing the temple is a physical beginning of him eventually establishing this new Jerusalem. But that can only happen when they become faithful. Remember, they can't become completely faithful because it feels kind of like a, uh, a, a, a contradiction. Like, okay, I can't become faithful because my heart is evil and wicked. It has to be circumcised. But you're only going to circumcise my heart until I become faithful. And then all that kind of stuff can happen. And it does feel kind of frustrating. Okay, God, I feel kind of stuck here. But the idea is that there has to be some kind of a turning back to him. Now, you just can't sit on your couch and throw your fist at God and say, screw you, and he's just going to come in and circumcise your heart. And so there has to be a desire to want to pursue God. God makes it clear that you can't actually do it, and he makes it clear that our hearts aren't completely 100% pure enough to want to do it completely, but there is at least a starting point that we can have. And there has to be a desire to give up God's and give up disordered loves. And so this is what God is calling them to as an action of faithfulness. And when John the Baptist comes on the scene, that's the very first thing he's going to say is, repent for the kingdom of God is at near or at hand. And he's going to ask them to repent, which then will lead with the Holy Spirit coming. This is what the purpose of these prophets are, is to call them to become what they now that they've been cleansed, so to speak, through the exile and the judgment, and they've been returned back to the land, they need to start acting like this so that God can establish this. There are three main themes in these post-exilic prophets. First, 
Israel could not return to the way that they lived before the exile. Instead, they needed to turn to him in faithfulness so he could bless them. The exile would not truly be over until they were faithful to him. So that's kind of wrapped up in the purpose. They, they could not return to the way that they were before. That one of the points of putting your children in time out or having conversations about the heart is that the desires after the conversation about their heart desires and wrong behavior and attitudes and after being time out, that they will not return to those behaviors. Now, we know that those conversations had to happen a lot before new behaviors and thought patterns begin to get established. And we also know that God has had those conversations with his people a lot. And so the idea is you cannot return back to that lifestyle. You have to be faithful. And we're going to see that a lot in these books. The second theme is that they needed to build the temple where they could reestablish the sacrifices for atonement of their sins and Yahweh would come and dwell with them. The whole point of choosing Israel was so that Yahweh could dwell with them. Without a house... There's no sacrifices, therefore there's no atonement, therefore there is no cleansing where you can dwell with God. Now we already talked about this back in Samuel and Kings and then Ezra again, that God didn't really want a temple. But the fact remains that he also didn't want us to sin. Yet he chooses to use us despite the fact that this house, our body, is corrupted. And even though this house is not what God wanted, corruption and sin and defilement, he still chooses to atone us and indwell us and use us despite that. Because he knows what he can do with that and what he can transform us into one day. He also didn't want a king in the way that they wanted a king. But he still allowed them to have a king in the way that they wanted it because he knew he could use that to hopefully bring their knees and rep- bring them down to their knees in repentance and then want a king that he wanted. So even though he didn't want a temple, he wanted a tabernacle, he still allowed them to do that because he knew they were going to pursue it in their stubbornness no matter what, and so he blessed it. Now the tabernacle's long gone. There's no way that people are going to go back to a tabernacle after seeing Solomon's temple. It is what it is now, and that's what God's going to do. Just like the earth is a sinful place now, and it is what it is now, and God's going to use it. We are what we are now, and God is going to use it. So the temple is what it is now, and he needs to use it. That's his desire. He wants to use it. Even though they weren't supposed to rebuild a physical stone temple, they should have gone back to tents, the idea of what a temple is, a house, a dwelling of God, a place for atonement of sins, a place for encountering him and worshiping him, that is what God wants. And that's what we need. To, we can't confuse because sometimes you're like, well, God didn't want a temple, but he uses the temple. And it's like, well, that's kind of confusing. What he wanted was the idea of what the temple represented. And though the people built it in the wrong way, he still will use it because that's what he wants, that idea. And so he's going to call them to reestablish that temple. Just like he's, once again, like I said before, he uses us despite our bodies and our minds and our spirits are all corrupted. Third theme, Yahweh anticipated the day that he would establish the new Jerusalem in which the covenant people of Yahweh will be faithful to him, and he will dwell with them in his fullness. This will be made possible by the king priest known as the branch, which Yahweh will lift up one day to rule over Israel. 
Now remember, just like with the pre-exilic prophets, God not only judged them for their sins and called them to repent and turn away from that, but he also promised what he would do one day and painted a very vivid picture of his redeeming of Israel. In the same way, he's calling them to reestablish the temple, turn away from their sins, to go into faithfulness. But he's also, like the pre-exilic prophets, continuing to paint that picture of what he will do one day with the new Jerusalem. And in some ways, the picture that he paints with the post-exilic prophets is very similar and the same words and the same brushstrokes, so to speak, as what we saw in the pre-exilic prophets. But with these post-exilic prophets, he's going to add new metaphors and new brushstrokes to the painting and get a much more deeper image of what this new Jerusalem will look like one day. And one of the things that he establishes a lot more clearly is this idea of king-priest, that the Messiah will be king-priest. So we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to those passages. But remember, God never allowed you to be king and priest simultaneously. Not one, no human, no single human was allowed to be king and priest simultaneously. Yet in Psalm 110, where David's speaking to Yahweh, and he says, Yahweh said to my master, meaning the Messiah, sit at my right hands and hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's kingship. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's priesthood. So David was the first one to really couple king and priest together under the inspiration of God. It is now these prophets, the post-exilic prophets, that are going to develop that king priesthood idea even more. And we've briefly seen the word branch, the branch, capital B, referring to the Messiah. But he's really going to use that idea, that title branch, even more with the post-exilic prophets. So these are the three major themes that permeate and flow through and tie these prophets together as we go through this book, these books.